0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Today we are at the New Books in Military History, and today we are going to have an episode which differs a bit from what we usually do. Usually we talk to an author or perhaps a co-authors of a book, but today we are going to have two people who are editors. We have Timothy Heck and Brad Friedman, we have created um, on contested shores the evolving role of amphibious operations in the history of warfare, which is a, a very hot topic right now in some of the military theory community. And I say created because, uh, Timothy and Rhett, you've edited the book, but as I under- as a, as, as an understand, you've also contributed a lot to the content. I think each of you have written a chapter. And you, you, of course, worked with all of the others. So can you tell us a little bit about the book before
2: we go on? Uh, yeah, so when, uh, you know, Tim and I knew each other for many years and uh, we came together uh, and it kind of realized that it had been a long time since anyone had taken an academic uh, look at amphibious operations, um, you know, outside the military community, um, where, where it was covered in doctrine and things like that. Um, so we started looking around, uh, for some contributors and, uh, we were very lucky to find a really large group of people that had been, uh, just waiting for an opportunity like this to write about the subject, uh, and didn't have a venue, so to speak. Um, so we started putting together, uh, essays and, uh, chapters, and how we were going to do the editing process. And it was all very much, uh, learned by doing, um. As, uh, neither one of us had edited a book uh, of this scale before um, and just really happy that it came out like it did
1: so the next question is, is for Tim if if you can now it's a bit of a it's a question which we don't always ask because normally again we have we have uh, writers and not editors so much so maybe as I understand Tim you were the lead on the project so, Can you tell us about some some of the obstacles you've encountered, some of the difficulties you've had in terms of working on this book and in terms of the research and how you've overcome these difficulties?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, one, I want to dispel that I was the lead. Uh, I think it was very much a team effort. Brett's existing stature in the military, writer's community uh, was certainly a very big help in getting us the, the folks that, that we needed and, and making the introductions to either our authors or folks that wound up being peer reviewers or that passed us on to somebody who, who was going to contribute uh, in, in a uh, direct way. And, and so it was definitely a team effort. In terms of obstacles, the biggest obstacle we ran into was in some ways the tyranny of, of distance. And that, by which I mean, I at the time was living in Mexico, Brett was living in Northern Virginia. We have authors in Australia in the UK, here, there, and everywhere. And as a result, it was difficult for us to kind of do that face-to-face meeting, right? Everybody, you know, and and it sounds strange in this, well, not post-COVID, but in this COVID-inflicted world where we're on Teams and Zoom and Skype, and we have all of these virtual meetings, and it's just kind of what you do. But when we were putting this together in 2019... You know, 2018, 2019.
1: What's that? A totally different
0: world. It was a a very different world. And, you know, today, if I was to put a volume together and, you know, I do this with with authors that I work with at my day job, you know, I I don't have a problem jumping on a quick Teams call or a Zoom call and hashing ideas out real fast. But then it was a little bit more uh, kind of novel. And I'd been living you know outside of the United States so I was comfortable using Zoom for calling my family but it I hadn't thought about using it as professionally as we certainly all are these days. So the tyranny of distance was one of the obstacles we ran into and then one of the other one of the other things that I you know it's, it sounds strange but it was kind of self-doubt. We went to the McMullen Naval History Symposium in 2019 with two three of our authors were supposed to be there only two wound up being able to physically attend and you know, we came at, I, I went into it kind of going, you know, we, we've we had this, prog- this process in place for an hour or for a year now. Maybe it's in, it's just not going to happen. I don't know. And I was kind of starting to doubt my ability and our ability to get it over the finish line. We went to McMullen and poof, it was just like the door opened. Um, you know, you're, you're in, we were in the room with with Frank Blasich and, and Randy Papadopoulos and all of these big names in American military history currently. And as a result, we were able to get it over the finish line, right? We picked up a few chapters there. And then we, we talked with with folks who went up peer reviewing. And you should talk to so and so and you should talk to this person. And and as a result, there was that impetus of, oh, okay, so we have, you know, we had done 75% of the work at that point. And I think just framing it in the we just need to do a little bit more. Was perfect. And then, you know, I, I couldn't say enough good things about working with Marine Corps University Press in, in the editorial and submissions process. Angela Anderson, the lead editor there, is, and I forget what her actual title is, but the lead editor, um, she's responsive, she's generous, she is uh, very knowledgeable and insightful about the process. And as a result, it made our jobs a lot easier that when we submitted the completed manuscript, we knew what she wanted, we knew what they needed, and it made the editorial process uh, after submission a lot easier. So I think the tyranny of distance, that self-doubt, and then the other thing was making sure that we found the right editor and the right publisher for the book, and we certainly did with Marine Corps University Press.
1: So what I'm learning from this is to have uh, have, uh, the right people to work with is a very important thing uh, in such a project but um, a- I, uh, ab- yes I'm
0: absolutely you know and i think i since releasing on contested shores one of the big things that i took away from it was start with your press in mind so i'm i have a another edited volume under consideration at a press right now and when my co-editor and i for that project started the first thing we did was identify which publisher we wanted to work with and started the talk with them to make sure that they were on board because shifting editorial styles and site you know even something as it's not minute but even as something as seemingly minute as how you do citations uh impacts authors, right? If, if you have a certain number of hours because you're a, a grad student or you're you're teaching or you're working on another project and this is something you're doing for fun or something that you're, that you're writing on the side, you don't want to go and spend eight hours of time you don't really have to change your citations from APA to Chicago Manual of Style. It's just not there. It's not fair to the authors. So starting with the press in mind certainly was a lesson that that I took from it as I we built the second as I built my second vo- edited volume.
1: So uh, I want to switch around a bit and actually talk about the book itself. Now, as I've said before, again, most of the articles in the book, obviously, you've not written them, and so I'm not I'm not going to go into the specific details of most of these articles. That would be a bit unfair to you, I feel, if I did that. But there is a one. One issue which comes up again and again throughout the book and in the, in the range of articles, and it's clearly super important to the book, which is the use of history in, the, in training. Of course, we always want, especially when we publish with a military publisher, we want to talk about military history in such a way that it could be applied by officers in their training and, God forbid, also in war, but on the other hand, obviously, many of these events in the past are in a completely different tactical environment, technological environment is different. So I'd like to ask you, as as clearly you're very knowledgeable, as readers of um, military history, as people who are reading about these events in the past, how do we get uh, how do we get lessons which would be not uh, you know which would which could be applicable regardless of technology how do we learn these sort of lessons uh
2: so you know i think what this book demonstrates is it kind of exactly to your point um how a knowledge of history can help um lend insight into current operations and that's You know, coming at this book, not as academics with PhDs, but rather to uh, officers in the military, that's kind of like our bread and butter. Um, And part of what we were trying to do was uh, create this book that's not just relevant uh, to academics who are studying the time period or studying the subject, uh, but military officers and um, enlisted service members like ourselves that want to use history as a training aid. Uh, and now have a one-stop shop uh, that's available right from the Marine Corps um, to take this kind of broader look at uh, trends in amphibious operations across history. Uh, one thing that your question reminded me of is uh, command and control relationships, which are always critical um, to amphibious operations. So as technology changes, you know, the command and control arrangements between the naval side and the uh, landing party side really remain the same. Um, There's one chapter about uh, uh, a writer from the uh, 18th century that was writing about how the Navy, the Navy side of the equation should really be in charge until uh, the troops are ashore. And then that command and control passes to uh, the landing party ashore. And, You know, that's an insight from history that is centuries old and still applies today, even though uh, technology has vastly changed. Uh, We have purpose-built amphibious ships and ship-to-shore connectors, which they never had. Um, But that, uh, you know, lessons learned from the past, even without that technology, still apply today. Uh, So that's that's something I think we've been really pleased with. The book, uh, because it'll enable those kind of insights. Um, When it comes to training, you know, you really want to look for stuff that is fundamental, uh, stuff that's going to apply no matter the situation, because you don't know what situation you're going to be confronted with in the future. Uh, So taking a broad, multi-century look at the subject matter uh, can really generate those kind of insights.
1: So now I have a question which kind of switches things around a bit from what I just asked, because I've just asked about things which are eternal and unchanging and things which we can learn from the past, but the book is also about the future. There's a lot of discussions there about you know, how there's several chapters about the evolution of amphibious warfare, present and future. And just as I was working on preparing for this interview. There was, a, there was, for example, a news report on a new Marine Corps driverless uh, missile uh, platform, which, was, which is supposed to assist in landings, and there's lots of these new things which, uh, which uh, gives the opportunity for boss attackers and defenders to have guided weapons and uh, drones and these very long-range precision fires which are not only very lethal, but also very compact. And and generally, the the fire and the reconnaissance capabilities are constantly improving. And so I'd, I'd like to know, either Timothy or Brad can answer this, what is the impact of these new technology developments on how amphibious warfare is going to because it's uh, from a layman's perspective, it it seems to me that it, it, it seems like it would become much more difficult to carry out these operations.
0: I think it it will remain difficult, right? Every there there's a I don't think it's an apocryphal saying, but there's the saying that the amphibious operation is the most difficult one that there is. And uh, I think that's going to continue to be true, right? You're you're taking a force. Either and putting it either onto a beach or off of a beach. And that is going to continue to be a complex interplay of nature, man, and technology. And how that plays out in every operation is going to be different. Right with the with the advent of more I'm going to stop again, Boris. Hang on, I'm tell your editor cut cut the last 15 seconds. As the U.S. And, and partners and even our adversaries and pacing threats frame amphibious operations, the plurith... The pl- God damn it. Try it again. <laughs> as we look at amphibious operations, the expansion of access to high technology uh, can, does play a significant role as you frame and plan for an operation you know, we have to look to Nagorno-Karabakh, right, drones taking out tanks. Well, the Marine Corps looked at, maybe looked at that, or maybe it already made the decision, but kind of said, hey, tanks aren't worth it from from what we're looking to do. And so for every technological advance, there's going to be a response. And, you know, in, in, in military jargon, the flash to bang, right, from when that advance happens to when somebody figures out how to counter it, is kind of the window of opportunity that that technological advance has to significantly or or definitively alter a balance of power and i think for those that say and, and we've heard since gallipoli at least that the amphibious operation is dead well the amphibious operation isn't dead the amphibious operation might have changed technology is going to change how we do it right so if we think back to I and mean, we can use gallipoli we can use vera cruz from the book we can use these things you know that Spectrum management wasn't as big of a concern at Gallipoli when it came to radios. Now spectrum management and communications masking and these things are, a, are an essential part of the planning process that has to go into amphibious operation for survivability. If you can be seen, you can be killed. And that means either visually or that means because you're emitting an electromagnetic pulse to communicate, to let somebody know you're okay or that you need fires or whatever. And so as the technology shifts and improves again, I'm going to go back to Brett's statement here that we were looking for timeless examples. We were looking for timeless tools that would apply. Uh, you know, I think in the chapters where we, where our authors looked to the future, there wasn't necessarily a, we should buy technology X. We should, you know, invest in, in program Y. It was. And it's we not should look at these.
1: Know-able. Yes, it's it's not fully possible to guess in advance what are the technologies going to be. How it will be like.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think once you start tying ideas and doctrine to specific pieces of technology, you're going to have a problem. Um, you know, certainly the Marine Corps has invested a lot of money in some platforms that it developed uh, that it didn't wind up keeping with it. It it washed its hands of them and. Brett and I are artillery officers, and, and we watched you know, the 777-155mm howitzer come in, and it was a, a fantastic piece of gear. But as our force design games and, and planning process went, the realization was it doesn't necessarily have the same role that it used to. And so the Marine Corps started divesting a little bit of that and is instead investing in long-range rockets to a much more significant extent. You know, when we, when we were lieutenants, there was one battery in each regiment and there's you know two and a half Marine Corps, three and a half Marine Corps regiments. When you count the reserves uh, of artillery, one battery was rockets. Now they have divested of a lot of the towed artillery and put more rocket batteries in because they see the name for, you know, the, the war planners see the need for long range precision fires. And I think that's a good read of, of what's out there and what's needed, but that's not, you know, the, those kind of things. In our book, are talked about at the very high level. So again, we we wanted to focus on timeless and eternal concepts rather than specific technologies. And maybe that lesson from the 15th century, uh, or or you know, a sixteenth, I think it was the 16th century Dutch defensive operation is gonna inspire some staff planner or some commander somewhere and go, oh, I can run a training drill about the defense. And here's an idea, and here's a historical example. Let's see what that looks like. And that's, I think, where the value of the book is, rather than, not rather than, but in addition to a vaguely future-forecasted look.
1: Thank you for that, Tim. Now, I have a question. I have a couple of questions for Brett, really. And uh, Brett has uh, the misfortune, if you will, of having written on something which I have some general knowledge of from my own research. And uh, you've written a chapter on... uh, what you, what sometimes we call and I don't know how to pronounce the proper Italian words. Gerdirazia, probably awful. I know. Uh, these landing special operations, if you will, where you where you land a small force to perform a, 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 a tactical or, or even strategically valid operation, and you withdraw them. Yes. I mean, I'm understanding correctly what you have written, yeah. and yes. spoke, spoken a lot about how the United States could use these sort of tactics going forward, but what I would like to talk about that you've mentioned this a bit, is that America's adversaries are also training for this. Certainly, the Russians are training for this, and from my own knowledge, of course, the Russians have used these sort of tactics in their war with Georgia where they had some reconnaissance teams which damaged some warships of the Georgian navy and the russian uh, the pro russian separatists in ukraine have done this also in a very amateurish way but they did carry out some uh, some small amphibious landings with rubber boats so it's clearly a threat that america's adversaries could do these things they could attack infrastructure or whatever else and so I wonder what your thoughts are on how one uh, how one could protect against this uh, kind of operation uh, um, on the grouping, and uh, if you if you if you will, what if we are on the receiving end of this?
2: Well, yeah, you're definitely right. I, I think uh, the amphibious raid is um, coming more in style in current and future operations. Uh, we've even seen, uh, non-state actors execute them. The Mumbai and uh, I, I believe in, it was 2008. Um, that, that was executed, uh, via an amphibious raid. Um, uh, there was another one, actually a couple, uh, Al Shabaab in Somalia has done a couple of different amphibious operations on the, off the coast of Somalia. Um, And I think, uh, you know, we're going back to the timeless lessons that we were trying to draw out from this book. Uh, One of those is you absolutely need sea control in order to execute uh, these kind of operations. Um, And the reason I kind of wrote that the raid is going to become more important, uh, both for state actors and non-state actors, is because just because technology like the UAVs and the precision guided munitions are going to make gaining sea control more difficult. Uh, than it was in the past. And uh, if that's your prerequisite to execute something, um, you know, that scales with the type of amphibious operation that you're doing. If you're doing a large scale amphibious assault, you need far more sea control than you do. If uh, you're Al Shabaab executing a raid in Somalia, which you barely need any sea control, just enough to get there
1: and back. Um and really, not, not even really back if you've decided that you're going to be martyrs for your right. cause. And- uh, yeah,
2: and that martyr didn't maybe your planned withdrawal and make it a raid in that case. Um, uh, which is an interesting concept. Um, but as, the, as technology makes sea control harder to gain, um, you're not going to be able to execute the large scale amphibious assaults of the past. Like, no one's going to be able to execute a Normandy against a pure opponent uh, because just the weapons won't allow the ships to get in and loiter at sea and be able to execute something of that scale anymore. Um, but you're still going to need to get to objectives. You're still going to need to, um, you know, affect the enemy's maritime space uh, through naval, uh, you know, power projection from offshore, like the Russians did in Georgia. Um, use that to kind of take Georgia's uh, Navy off the table. Um, And that if you can't get sea control to do an amphibious assault, you're going to be limited to things like raids and demonstrations. Uh, And I think history's even recent history is bearing that out a little bit. Uh, And I know we're going to talk about the defense here in a little bit and that sea control issue is really uh, important to keep in mind when you're trying to forecast where these uh, types of
1: operations are going to go. Well, because I read in Russian as well as in English, I have of, I have been exposed to a lot of strange things which the Soviets da- did in, during the Cold War where they were very afraid of American divers for some reason. They've developed this bizarre menagerie of different anti-diver weaponry, which I don't think any other nation ever had, and uh, but now that we are uh, now that I'm learning from you that the raid is going to be uh, to be important that we're going to have these uh, these perhaps divers perhaps people on the small craft which would be attacking installations and attacking facilities or whatever else, the Soviets had something right. Do, uh, do we need now to develop some kind of special effort to protect
2: against this uh well you know i think the defense against amphibious raids is um pretty much the same as defense against any amphibious operation if you can maintain the sea and air control of your offshore space uh those raids are going to be exceedingly difficult uh and it, this kind of arms race between the offense and the defense happens on both sides uh so both Russia and China have developed ways to uh, what we call anti-access area denial, which is really just an integrated coastal defense system that is going to prevent a large scale uh, amphibious assault from occurring because uh, the sea control and air control required to execute it can't be achieved before Um Now, their systems, both Russia and China, I would say, are focused on defending against an amphibious assault and not so much against an amphibious raid, uh, which is kind of why uh, the Marine Corps is moving more towards the raid and away from the amphibious assaults um, because they see an opportunity um, there. And they see that amphibious assaults are maybe not worth the investment because of uh, all the threats of precision-guided munitions and the ability of uh, Russia and China to keep air and sea control in their regions. Um, so if you look at things like amphibious advanced base operations, all it is is raids. It's uh, establishing temporary bases uh, at a forward position to for a small amount of time, hours or days, in order to do a mission, and then that base gets withdrawn and moves somewhere else. That's all it is is a raid. Um, but how do you defend against that? You keep develop the ways and means and platforms, uh, to prevent the opponent from getting the sea control necessary to execute those raids. So, yeah, I think definitely the Marine Corps should be looking at, uh, if we're going to start doing these amphibious advanced raids on a large scale, what can the enemy do to prevent our ability to do that? Um. And how they're going to try to achieve the sea control and air control necessary to prevent those bases from operating. Um, As for, uh, you know, defense against raids uh, on other countries, you know, every country is different. It's another enduring lesson from the book is that geography and maritime oceanography is uh, very important for these operations, which goes to Tim's point that they're seen as so difficult. Uh, it's because just the factors, the amount of factors that apply to an amphibious operation are really far more than most other operations.
1: So what I'm learning, what I understand from you, Brett, is that to, for a country to be, to defend itself from this sort of attack, it's really not an issue of a specific weapon system or a specific idea, but, it's a, but you basically need to have a competent navy and and that's your defense from, from these sort of attacks. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I'd even go
2: farther and say it's not about a specific service like the Navy or anything, but just the ability to maintain sea and air control in the area you want to defend. Uh, you know, it, the paradox of amphibious operations is that they are the most difficult form of military operation, but also most of them succeed. And I think that's because they require uh, so much sea control and in the modern times air control on top of that, that if you don't achieve those prerequisites, that amphibious operation never gets launched. And so the success rate of the amphib- amphibious operations that do get launched is artificially high because the way to defend against them, the way to prevent them is to you know prevent the offense side of the equation from ever achieving the sea and air control necessary to execute. And how, th- how that's done, it could be a Navy, it could be an air force, could be a rocket force uh, as we've seen, but um, that's the point. That's really um, step one. If you're on the defense.
1: So really because of the planning of these operations require, a lot of them we just don't know about because people sat down in the planning stage and they said, "Well, this is not going to work. We are not going to do that." And in this way, the defender succeeded, and uh, he might not even find out that he succeeded.
2: Exactly, we'll never know uh, if that defense was going to work because it just it a- acted as a deterrence from the execution ever happening.
1: Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to work forward towards a conclusion, if if I may, which is. If you wanted to address uh, new readers of your book, uh, potential readers, you know, b- books like this, uh, every, every major research topic it has, uh, of course, lots of knowledge, lots of big questions but, uh, b- and big answers, but what are, the, what are the kind of questions, the kind of things which you want readers to go and think about, which are maybe unsolved or important in this field, uh, which you would like Reader to focus on going forward. What are the big questions of the amphibious warfare world, if you will?
0: The big questions about the amphibious war world, from I think from our perspective, is that where does it fit in in your overall scheme? So you know, again, the 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 popular memory is the assault, right? The popular memory is your Tarawa, your Iwo Jima's, your Gallipolis, your Normandies, but there are so many other operations um, that are out there and types of things that can be done from the sea. And so as a planner, as a an element of you know, the military aspect of national power, what does the sea what can you know what can the sea do for you and what can you do for the sea? Um, or what can you do from the sea? And I think that's where that's where we try to situate some of the book is is also the idea that, it is more than, than thousands of, of men and women storming over a beach against an opposed landing. It is the non-combatant evacuation operation. It is the special operations mission, right? So maybe that's where your Soviet anti-diver uh, weaponry comes in. But there is more to conducting amphibious operations than just battleships on a row, firing into targets on land, and amphibious vehicles connecting from ship to shore and offloading troops to storm up a beachhead. There's a lot more to it, and I think that's the, that's the enduring thing that we, we worked on in our book as
1: well. So what we are, so there, there's an iceberg. We, everybody has seen the big hunk uh, of ice on top of the water, but what you are telling us with your move is that there is much more ice, and that we need to be aware of it.
0: Absolutely. Again, I think back to the, the training that Brett and I received or the, the, the military history education that we received as young officers, and the focus was definitely on the assault. And you know, in the, the history lessons that we were taught at Officer Candidate School, uh, they briefly mentioned Operation Sea Angel, which was a, a, um, a humanitarian assistance mission that the Marines did in Bangladesh in the early 1990s. And for whatever reason, right, of all the, you know, kind of all the arcane little bits of history that have percolated into my head and stayed there, that stuck out that that was important enough that our instructors thought it was valuable for us to know. And in some ways, a humanitarian operation is, is just a raid. But instead of delivering firepower, you're delivering food, you're delivering medicine, you're delivering water. Um, but it's a different way of framing an amphibious operation, you know. So in 2003... The march up to Baghdad has been completed and they pulled one of the East Coast Mews, I forget which one, uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, sorry, speaking in acronyms, uh, out of Iraq and sent it off the coast of West Africa to do non-combatant evacuation operations. So here were Marines that had been in combat in an invasion weeks before, and now they're helping process American citizens and, and those of our partners and allies to evacuate from West Africa. They're conducting peacekeeping operations. There's a lot going on that all came from the sea. And so when you think about amphibious operations, what we just kept coming back to is there is so much more than Iwo Jima or Normandy or Gallipoli.
2: Yeah. And just to reiterate that point uh, in the last two months, we've seen an amphibious operation into a landlocked country in Afghanistan. Uh, The initial U.S. troops that were uh, sent in to secure Kabul airport and uh, start to evacuate people as a Taliban advance that came from the sea. Uh, There's was, there was a projection from the sea to secure an area uh, temporarily. And then uh, once the threat had passed and the mission had been accomplished, uh, withdraw those troops back to the sea. That's an amphibious raid, uh, And most people wouldn't view it that way or frame it that way. But. By a doctrinal definition, it is, Uh, and because amphibious history is so dominated by the large-scale assaults, uh, the Normandies, the Iwo Jimas, the Okinawas, uh, part of the goal of this book was to get people to think: well, and you know, how many different things could be accomplished with amphibious forces, not just the assaults.
1: I'd like to thank both of you for uh, being on the show. Thank you, Tim. Brad, thank you for being with us.